Good morning. <clears throat> we, <laughs> we are gathered on uh, an appropriately rainy day to discuss a subject which, that involves water. Uh, not a coincidence. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks, uh, first of all, for the ability to worship and for uh, pro providing here at Maranatha just uh, quality worship leaders. And we thank you for the songs uh, chosen this morning that have uh, drawn our attention to the fact that we are redeemed, that we are saved, that we have uh, a living Savior, one who, having set us free, now also gives us the power through your Holy Spirit to live as those who are free. Lives, Lord God, that uh, in, in keeping with the song, we, it is our joy to honor you. Whereas before, O oh Lord, we perhaps gave no thought to you, or, or, or if we had thoughts about you, that certainly wasn't a joy uh, to do anything in your name. It was more of a labor. But now, Lord God, it is a, a labor of love, a work of, uh, of worship that we do to serve you, to honor you, uh, to hear your word, to be reminded that uh, when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the the atoning sacrifice for sin. Lord God, as we've been working through um, what it means to be gathered as your people, why we worship the way that we do, why our worship service is structured in this way, we have discussed uh, various things. Lord, we, last week we looked at the sacrament and the ordinance of uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, and this week we turn our attention to the sacrament of baptism. And we ask, O oh Lord God, for the help of your Holy Spirit to to really worship you and to understand the, the, the power and significance of this one-time act uh, that uh, sets us apart and marks uh, that the Holy Spirit has done a work within us to bring us into relationship with you. And then having brought us into that relationship, empowering us to tell others about the marvelous grace, the amazing love, and the powerful regenerating work of your Holy Spirit. Father, uh, we ask that you would assist us now. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I'm <clears throat> talking about the, 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 bapt the sacrament of baptism, I'm reminded um, of an incident that happened when uh, shortly after I arrived at uh, the church I served in Ridgetown, Ontario, in Canada, we were going to celebrate <clears throat> uh, the baptism of several of our members. And the local paper... Uh, published this, you know, back in the days when they would actually do these things. And it was, uh, had to make a correction because in the paper, it noted that uh, Emmanuel Congregational Church was going to have a baptism service on such and such a Sunday where several of its members will be submerged. Yeah, you, you kind of got it. So I, I just said, I just wrote a, a gentle letter to the editor saying it just, not to be picky about this, but just to be careful here, submarines submerge. Believers are immersed. It just maybe a distinction without a difference, but it was just one of those things where it was important to draw that distinction. The idea that somehow submerge and you're just going to stay there. You know, one 1,000, two 1,000, you know, the arm begins to flail. Okay, let him up. It's not what we do. Uh, and it's interesting that within the Protestant church, there are really essentially two schools, or maybe a third, but essentially two schools of thought 
concerning baptism. Uh, one school, um, and it's important to know both uh, sides here, just to understand where each side is coming from. So one school uh, will assert that it is uh, the oldest uh, and therefore the correct one. Uh, we'll say that baptism is not only for those that do actually profess faith in, in obedience unto Jesus Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized and those only. That's from the, the Savoy Declaration. Um, it's a, a congregational document. Uh, and that position that is stated there is what is known as the pedo-baptist or the infant-baptist position. And it's adopted by churches whose doctrine is shaped by Reformed theology. Typically, these would be uh, conservative Presbyterian churches and, and some conservative congregational churches. Advocates of infant baptism connect it to the practice of circumcision in the Old Testament, that as a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and later Israel, circumcision would welcome uh, a Jewish boy into the covenant community of God's people where he would learn the terms and stipulations of the covenant and of Torah. And then when you come into the New Testament, Circum uh, baptism then expands to include boys and girls, and the children are welcomed into the covenant community where they will learn the gospel from their parents uh, and then learn to practice what Jesus preaches. Pedobaptists uh, believe that baptism is a, a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace of their engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of their giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. That, again, is from the Savoy Declaration. Now, to be careful here, that on a Protestant side, those who practice pedobaptism do not teach, nor do they believe, that baptism saves a child. Rather, the sacrament is regarded as the means by which the child is welcomed into the covenant community and brought under the covenant promises that God makes to his church through the gospel. So churches that baptize infants will often have confirmation classes at a certain age, 12, 13, where children having been educated will make a profession of faith at a Sunday worship service, and everybody is happy about that because they're all now uh, fully, if you will, uh, engaged in their faith. Now, the other school of thought, and the one to which Maranatha and all Baptist churches belong and believe, uh, believe and teach that only those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the proper subjects for baptism. This is what's known as the credo-baptist or the believer-baptist position, credo being the Latin phrase, I believe. And so, in this position, uh, we believe that there must be a profession of faith prior to baptism. And uh, I have many Presbyterian and Reformed friends, and they chide me about this, but I retort to them rather politely and lovingly that one can be, thorough, one can be Reformed in doctrine and yet still be a Baptist, to which they reply, well, you're not thoroughly Reformed. To which I reply, well, tell that to C.H. Spurgeon. Or uh, my, one of my theology professors at Gordon Conwell, Roger Nicole, who is a well-known Reformed Baptist. So it's possible to adhere to Reformed theology, which we do here at Maranatha, and be Baptist. At the same time, it is also possible to adhere to Reformed theology and hold to a congregational form of government and still be Baptist, which is, again, 
our position here at uh, Maranatha. Now, why do this? Why set up this, this if you will, this dichotomy? It's simply, it's because it's important to know what the other side, if you will, believes about a certain thing so that you have an understanding of it. So you just don't sort of write off one half of the church because they don't adhere to a particular understanding of a sacrament. We're Baptists. We're proud to be Baptists. We understand that what makes us Baptists is not only our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that one must confess faith in Jesus to be saved, but then one must also confess faith in Christ in order to be baptized. And so we believe that before a child, before a teenager, before an adult can be baptized, they must make a credible profession of faith in Christ. We believe this because an infant cannot make a profession of faith. Parents of an infant child presenting the child to be baptized will make vows, will take vows in the name of that child, but the child itself cannot express faith in Christ. Only an older child, a teenager, an adult can do that. And so we believe very thoroughly, if you want to sort of put a big idea to this, we believe that baptism follows a confession of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That baptism is the visible testimony of our commitment to practice what Jesus preaches. It is the, the public declaration of one's trust in Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice for sin. We believe as Baptists that, uh, and we teach that baptism, the sacrament of baptism, is the outward sign that the Holy Spirit has opened our heart to believe the gospel, that having been dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ, so that to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, we have been crucified with Christ, so that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And the life we now live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, pedo-baptists would believe the same thing. It's just that they put baptism before profession of faith. We would say they're putting the cart before the horse. They would say, well you're treating your little ones as if they're little sinners. And my response is, then why do you have them make a confession of faith when they're 12 or 13? What are they before then, if not baptized sinners? That doesn't really make a, for a good argument with them, and usually the lunch ends at that point. But for the sake of clarity, uh, let, let me just read what we what we say in our uh, Constitution with respect to this. Because baptism, from our perspective, is important, an important requirement for church membership. So we say in our Constitution that regenerate church membership is essential to the life and mission of any local church. Hence, uh, the membership of Maranatha Grace Church shall consist of persons who have trusted upon Jesus as Savior and Lord through repentance and faith, such persons must give clear testimony and evidence of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and believers' baptism by immersion is required prior to church membership. However, allowances will be made in instances where the prospective member is convinced of and committed to a pedo-baptist, that is, an infant Baptist, understanding of the Scripture. 
because of the responsibilities and accountability involved with church membership, members must be at least 18 years of age. Now, we don't have an age requirement uh, with regard to baptism. But we would expect that a person, a child, let's say, of a certain age is wanting to be baptized, can at least, in their own words, explain what, is, what it means to put one's faith in Christ. So we understand that there are scriptural arguments for the infant baptism position, and we believe that there are stronger arguments, much stronger arguments, for the, for the believer baptist position. But we do not set up a restriction with regard to membership. Service might be another issue, but membership in that regard. And this is where the, the texts for this morning come into play in terms of explaining and understanding why we are Baptists and why we adhere to this and, and teach this as an important act of obedience. Because if you follow what Jesus is saying in Matthew 28, baptism is an act of obedience that's required of every follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, if Jesus says in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them every, to observe everything I've commanded to you. There are actually two commandments in one there. There's the commandment to go and baptize and, and then as a result of believing, it's being baptized. So there is this aspect in which baptism is very central to the gospel. And that command that Jesus gives isn't four separate commands. It's not go, make disciples, baptize, teach. It's one command expressed in those four verbs. Go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that I have taught you, everything I have commanded you. And to baptize them, he says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we take Jesus to mean here when he talks about baptism to refer to believer baptism. It's not required for salvation, but it is required in order to prove that one has made a commitment, a profession of faith to follow Jesus, to obey the commandments that he has taught us, to identify with the fact that we belong to him, that we follow him, that we practice what he says, that the command then, too, to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit tells us something of the involvement of the Trinity in that moment. So that when some of our young people uh, come here to be baptized and Pastor Eric will baptize them in water, it's more than just Pastor Eric or maybe a parent baptizing that young man or young woman, but involved in that process in a spiritual way is every person of the Trinity who has been involved in, in shaping and, and, and uh, uh, conforming that young person's life or that adult's life into the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that the Spirit regenerates, the Son redeems, the Father justifies. That's why I think there's that Trinitarian formula in the Great Commission. The Spirit regenerates by making us alive through the hearing of the gospel. The Son redeems us because He delivers us from our sins by dying for our sins in our place. And then the Father justifies because... By the work of the Spirit, by the, the, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, then what the Father does is he declares us not guilty by means of our profession of faith in Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice to sins. Now, unlike the Lord's Supper, baptism we only do once. Ephesians 1 talks about there being one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There are some 
believers who will say, you know, let's make everybody happy. We'll baptize infants, and then when they get older, we'll baptize them as adults. It's not necessary. Just one baptism. We believe it's a one-time act of obedience. That's what baptism implies. Teaching to observe what Jesus says, on the other hand, conveys the idea of a continued obedience, a continued instruction, a continued growth in the faith. So that one who is baptized, it's not like, okay, you're baptized, you're good. You've got your membership card. We'll keep you updated via email and text us any specials we may have to offer, but you're, you're good now. Maybe come in every now and again to renew your commitment, but otherwise, you're fine. No, there's a continued uh, emphasis on growing and understanding your faith. That's why we have discipleship groups. That's why we have connect groups in terms of enfolding people into our membership. It's why we have MKids. It's why we encourage our, our parents to raise their children in the knowledge of, of Christ is to continue teaching. Uh, not only, let's say, to prepare your children to make a profession and then to be baptized, but then even, even after uh, someone is baptized, to continue not only hearing the word preached from this pulpit, but encourage to study through discipleship group, just encourage to study on your own as well. We can give you good tools. There are wonderful tools out there to understand the scriptures and to apply them to your daily life. So baptism is a one-time act, but the teaching that Jesus uh, gives to us is something that we have to grow in on a daily basis and will continue to grow because into eternity, Jesus even says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, what is eternal life? It's knowing God. So this knowing God, this learning never ends. Which is, uh, so it's incumbent upon us to take the vows, let's say, that we stayed at our baptism and to carry them forward throughout the rest of our Christian life. Because at baptism, it's like the starting line. We declare that a change has taken place, that we have switched sides. We've crossed the aisle. We've changed teams. We wear a new uniform. I, can, I got a whole bunch more metaphors, but those are the ones I threw out there just for the moment. It simply means we follow Jesus, that we imitate him to the best of our ability with the help of the Holy Spirit, that we will, with the best of our ability and the Holy, and help of the Holy Spirit, follow his rules. Baptism says that we are more than just a different person, but we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. There's nothing magical about the waters of baptism. I remember talking to to you know, young teens in, in, uh, who are about to be baptized in other churches I've served, and you know they have this idea that boy, once I'm baptized, I'll never sin. It's like, it's like, you know, you got to get that lie out of your head right away because you are. Believe me, you're gonna, your parents going to ask you to clean your room, and you're going to grumble. So just, it's what it signifies, not necessarily what it does. Uh, there is a symbolic aspect to it as well, but it, it just simply means that you're a new creation in Christ. If you want to maybe think of, a, of, of an illustration or analogy, another metaphor, think of the difference between the wedding day and marriage. Uh, so baptism is like the wedding day. Being taught to observe all that he has commanded is like the marriage. So, for example, my wedding day was July 11, 1981. On that day, Jill and I exchanged vows before God and people in the church. 
We promise to love one another, to live together as husband and wife. That wedding day lasted 24 hours. Our marriage began July 12th. Because then, on that day, we had to begin to apply and observe and to keep every promise we had made on July 11th. By the same token, it's not a perfect analogy, wedding day and marriage, prior to the wedding day, Jill and I were engaged. We had to commit to getting married. We had to make a decision to one another and say, from this point forward, I am exclusively yours and you are exclusively mine in terms of a commitment to love, honor, and obey. And we will consummate that on our wedding day and we will carry that vow and promise forward for the rest of our lives through our marriage. In the same sense, before one is baptized, there must be, if you will, an engagement, a promise, a commitment to follow Christ, a, an experience of being spiritually born again from above through trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then that Engagement, that promise is actualized and, and fulfilled on the day of one's baptism. And then one's discipleship carries forward every day after that. You're tracking with me, I can tell. Your eyes are awake or you're open, so that's good. So there are extraordinary circumstances under which people who come to faith in Christ aren't baptized. The thief on the cross is a, a good example of that. But that's an extraordinary circumstance. There's also deathbed confessions. Pretty hard to immerse someone in water when you're confined to a hospital bed. I, I, there was a, a church, a Baptist church, near the seminary I attended that ran into this issue. How are we going to baptize this person, literally, who did come to faith in Christ on his deathbed? Do they pour water over his head? No, that just makes a mess. Do they, they can't immerse him. So someone came up with the ingenious method of soaking a bed sheet in water and then wringing the water out and then just sort of laying. It could have just sprinkled his head. It would have been fine. But there are those kinds of extreme circumstances. The thing is, of course, in baptism, we make a commitment to follow Christ. For someone not to be baptized and who claims to be a follower of Christ, based on what Jesus says in Matthew 28, it's, that's to disobey a direct command of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is looking for disciples. He's not looking for names on a membership role. He's, he's looking for his disciples, men and women, children as well, teens, uh, who are willing to obey everything he has commanded. And one of the commands he gave us is to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And baptism is an act of obedience that's required of every follower of Jesus Christ. And when you get into Romans 6, Paul is there in Romans 6 following up everything he said in Romans 5 about being justified by uh, Christ. We have peace with God. He goes out to lay what it, uh, explain what it means to... For Christ to die in our place, you know, death comes through one man, life comes through Jesus. And then the question arises, well, boy, if we're saved, if, if everything is good, then why not just continue to sin so that grace may abound? And Paul's just like, you're missing the point. So he says, what shall we say then, right? Are we continue, or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
How can one who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Baptism is an act of obedience through which we identify with Jesus Christ. And the Greek word there for, for baptizo, uh, for baptism is baptizo. It's to make fully wet or to dip. It was also used to describe the process of dyeing a garment. And that's a great metaphor. So forgive me for maybe stretching a little bit. You could say, you could say that when a believer is baptized, they die with Christ are died with Christ and declare their identity in him. So that process of going into the water, under the water, and coming up out of the water signifies death, burial, and resurrection. Paul describes the process like this. He says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. We sang about it in the song in terms of he has broken every chain. There's salvation in his name. That we still live in this mortal flesh, but this mortal flesh now has a new owner. It's under new management. It is no longer governed by my thoughts, my desires, or even its own lusts. But I am governed body, soul, spirit, mind by the Holy Spirit of God because of having not only professed faith in Christ, but now symbolized that death and resurrection uh, through being baptized. So there are these three symbolic acts that are involved with baptism. There is death, immersion, and resurrection. So death is stepping down into the water. Immersion is being buried under the water. And resurrection happens when we're raised up out of the water. This is why Paul writes so passionately at the beginning of Romans 6. How could you say you're going to continue to sin if you have died and been buried with Christ and then been raised to newness of life? How could you still be a slave to sin if you're a slave to Jesus? It doesn't work. It's not all that different than what Jesus says about you can't serve God in money. You can't serve God with two hearts. He's given you a new heart. It belongs solely to him, symbolized by the death, burial, and resurrection of your baptism. So follow him. and Put away this nonsense, this idea that somehow you can continue to sin while follow Jesus, and God is good with that. Because baptism symbolizes the death and burial of our old way of life. Going under the water, our old self is crucified with Christ. Coming up out of the water, we're raised to live a new life of faith, obedience, and devotion to Jesus. This is why, like the Lord's Supper, baptism is considered a means of grace. It raises our awareness of what God did visually. It is this visual representation, if you will, of what God did by sending his son to die for our sins. It intensifies our appreciation of what, what Jesus did by taking the form of a servant and humbling himself to the point of death, even death of a cross. And then it strengthens our zeal to keep in step with the Holy Spirit as the giver of life, the comforter, instructor, 
and the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the day we take possession of it. So baptism symbolizes the fact, represents the fact we have made a profession of faith in Christ, and we are now committed with the help of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to live out that confession for the rest of our life based on what Christ did for us, symbolized by that one act of our obedience by going under the water of baptism. So baptism is an act of obedience through which we identify with Christ. The other thing, too, about baptism is that it looks forward to the day when Jesus will come back because there's resurrection involved in the act of baptism. It looks forward to the day when Jesus will come back. And as Paul says in Philippians, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The perishable will put on the imperishable. The mortal will put on immortality. And so we will always be with the Lord. So there's this element of past, present, and future that's involved in the sacrament of baptism in the same way that there is past, present, and future involved in the Lord's Supper. So baptism is this act of obedience that we identify with Christ, but also it marks the day when we fully committed to following Christ. Paul says in verses 5 through 7 of Romans 6, for, this is the concluding part of what follows in verse 4, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for he who has died has been set free from sin. You just let those words settle in in terms of the, the significance of baptism and in the significance of what it means to be justified by faith in Christ. Set free from sin. It's, it's, I, I think it's hard to communicate in terms of, if you, the only way I can think about it is if you have been either, you know, if, you, if you've committed some crime and, you know, for a certain period of time, you have to wear an ankle monitor. You can go about your business, but you're only confined to a certain geographic area. You maybe can't leave your house or you can only travel within five miles. And then suddenly someone comes along and says, and they cut that thing off your ankle. And they say, what are you doing? Well, someone has agreed to not only pay your fine, but to do the time that you owe. You're a free man. You're a free woman. You can go wherever you want. You're not tied to that thing around your ankle. Christ has set us free in that respect, that we are not guilty. And more importantly, God is no longer angry with you. Because his son has died in our place. His blood has paid every debt owed by us because of our sin. This baptism is essential to understanding what our freedom in Christ means. That it's, it's, yes, it's an act of obedience, but it's an act of joyful obedience in recognition of the freedom that we have in Christ. A friend of mine, and I think he got this from Martin Luther, but a friend of mine once told me that he circles the day of his baptism on his calendar. He, or he marks it in his phone. 
And I asked him, why does he do that? Just like he would his birthday. And I asked him why he did this, and he said, it's, it's so that on those days when I feel the farthest from God, when I feel like I am the worst Christian ever to walk the planet, I look at that day and I remember, well, at least on that day, on that day, I confirmed the promise that I made. I confirmed an act that God had done in my heart by the Holy Spirit. So that day tells me, no matter how badly I feel, no matter what I'm thinking about myself, no matter what lies the enemy is throwing against me, that day tells me I belong to Christ. I am his, and he will not let me go. And I like that. I don't remember the day of my baptism. I think it was in the summertime. It was in the summertime because I was home from college. It was at a little church of God in Lindenhurst, Long Island. And I remember my, my parents not really understanding why, having been baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church, why it was so important for me to be baptized in this little church. But it was because as I was a young Christian and told, it was important. It was an act of obedience. And I remember going to that church, not knowing if my parents were going to be there. They was like, oh, you know, this religion thing, it's good. Don't, get, don't go overboard with it. And I remember, you know, the service started. It was an evening service. It was a Sunday evening service. I remember the service started, and it was, you know, it was a Pentecostal church. It was all boisterous. Everybody was raising their hands. It was great. Then came time for the candidates to be baptized. I was one of them. There were like maybe half a dozen or so people. And I don't remember which one I was, whether I was number four or five or the last. But one thing I do remember is as soon as I came up out of the, the baptismal tank there, and they, you know, they hand you a towel, you know, doggone it, there was my father at the foot of the stairs. And my mom. They'd come in, I didn't see them. It was just a moment where you, you get this sense in which God is doing something there. And that, that was a prelude to their eventually coming to Christ. But it, it's the significance of that moment has an impact not only on the person being baptized. I tell parents, I tell children, uh, let's say teens who are being baptized, that if, particularly if they were dedicated as babies, I tell them, I said, you know, when you were an infant and your parents stood before a church and they dedicated you to the Lord and they were, there were certain promises that they made to raise you in a Christian home and that they would follow the principles and rules of the gospel as, a, as an, uh, an example to you, this day of your baptism, this is what they were praying for. This is what they were looking forward to on that day of dedication. So this is a moment where it's an answer to prayer. That you're being baptized is an answer to the prayer of your parents as well as every member of the church who was there that day that witnessed and testified and prayed for you and your parents. So it's, it's an act that declares there was a time, there was a moment when God changed my heart. And, I, and I, in obedience to that God who saved me, I am now telling everyone that I have changed teams, I've switched sides, I wear a new uniform, I am no longer clothed in the filthy rags of my own self-righteousness, but I am now dressed fully in the righteousness and glory and majesty and goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not feel it. You may not experience something. It may not be a, a warming of the heart. That's not the essential thing. It's the act in and of itself and what it symbolizes. The experience may follow that, but it's not necessary to have it. 
Because like our birthday, our baptism signifies the start of a new way of life. And then the, la- then the other part, the last part of it is baptism now says we are dead to sin and we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul brings his argument here to a conclusion. He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died, once to, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So baptism illustrates, if you will, how the, power, how the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because it, it puts us dead to sin, dead to our old way of life, and now alive to God, alive to serve Him, to honor Him, to tell uh, others about His glory and His goodness. We're commanded uh, to consider ourselves dead to sin because that is what we are in Christ. Dead, but alive to righteousness because of Christ. He destroyed the power of sin by dying in our place. He destroyed the power of death by rising from the dead. So we no longer need to fear the sting of sin nor the power of death because Christ has destroyed them both. We're still haunted, if you will, by our sin. We're still dogged by it because we're imperfect. We're not yet fully there, but we have already begun to live this new life. Which is why the Lord's Supper becomes a wonderful accompaniment to our baptism. Because at the Lord's table, we remember Christ has forgiven us, that we are redeemed. I'm baptized, but I still sin. Ah, but Christ has died for your sin. And the fact that you, can, you feel that pain, the fact that you feel that remorse, the fact that you feel that regret, that's the presence and the proof of the activity of the Spirit in your life, bringing you back to the table to eat the bread, to drink the cup as a reminder and encouragement. Yes, yes, yes. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. I am redeemed. We make this declaration at our baptism of a profession of faith in Christ. Not by might, not by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul, later on in Romans 8, these are wonderful verses. I just encourage you to go read that section from from Romans uh, 4, when he talks about Abraham and the covenant of grace. Read 4 through 8. I mean, if you're struggling with your faith, if you're struggling with whether or not God cares for you, if you're struggling with where you are in your Christian life, read Romans. But read Romans 4 through 8 especially. Because in Romans 8, 11, 15, and 16, Paul says this, If the Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, and I've, I've said before that a lot of times in our English Bibles, that word that's translated if can also be translated since. So Paul is not introducing a probability here. He's introducing a fact. Since the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Let there be no doubt about that, he says. 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who dwells in you. That's why you're baptized. Because the spirit dwells in you. Before he did it. Now he does. And now you're alive in Christ. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. By whom, he says, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's Romans 8, 11, 15, and 16. So we're children of God. Death, sin, no longer have power over us. Jesus destroyed them both. He transforms death from an event that separates us from our loved ones and even from God as it was believed. But now it transforms it into a process whereby we enter into God's presence and there to await a resurrected body, there to await a reunion with those who have been left behind by our death. It's what Jesus means when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Baptism points to that moment. So like the Lord's Supper, it unites the past, the present, and the future. Baptism is rooted in the past because it represents, it signifies there was a day when the Spirit opened our heart to the power of the gospel. We recognized that we were sinners. We confessed that we needed a Savior, and we put our faith in Christ. That was in the past, and in the present, we make that profession of faith. Because without a profession of faith, we wouldn't be stepping in to the water of baptism. And then it looks forward to the future. Because having been raised with Christ in baptism, we have God's promise that when Christ returns, he will raise us up and he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his own. Baptism follows a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. There are times when uh, occasionally a, a film or a book will, will give illustration to a biblical theme without necessarily knowing that it does it. Uh, and, I'm not a, and I'm not a big fan of, of uh, if you've ever seen the, the Shawshank Redemption, the film, I'm not a fan of Stephen King movies. I'm not a big horror guy. Thankfully, Shawshank is not a horror movie. But you know everything about the Shawshank Redemption, it takes place in a prison, supposedly in Maine. The main character of the Shawshank Redemption, say that three times fast, is Andy Dufresne. Andy Dufresne has been sentenced to prison for a murder he did not commit. He finds out while he's in prison over the span of 20 years that he has been framed for this murder. And the person who is able to set him free is actually murdered so that the, the warden never allows that confession to be heard. So he's still in prison. And over the course of 20 years, he tunnels through his prison cell wall to make his escape. And then the night that he makes his escape, he waits until there's a severe thunderstorm. He crawls through the wall, and he punches a hole with a brick into one of the sewer pipes that runs in the inner wall of the prison. And if you know the film, you know that Morgan Freeman is an actor who is the, one of the prisoners. 
Morgan Freeman's narrating this, you know, only, no, only Morgan Freeman can, right? And uh, he said, Andy crawled through 500 yards of muck and mire in that sewer. 500 yards. That's five football fields, a little over half a mile. And as, as you can see in the film, he's just crawling through, you know, you know what's in the sewer? So he crawls through the sewer, and he's, he has behind him in a plastic bag sealed a set of clothes, a new, a brand new shoes to make his escape. And as he emerges from this sewer pipe, he falls into a stream. It's pouring down rain. And he falls. The symbolism is pretty stark. He falls from the, this filthy sewer pipe into the stream of water and is instantly washed clean. He immediately takes off his prison shirt, takes off his undershirt, and standing shirtless, he just stands and lifts his hands and his eyes to the sky and he just rejoices. He is a new man. He is set free. He is clean. He is an innocent man as well. And he is baptized. On the day of our baptism, whatever we had done prior to that moment, because of our profession of faith, we stand before God, cleansed, by the Spirit, by the Word, by the water of baptism, and by the blood of the Lamb. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for baptism. We thank you for its power. We thank you for the symbolism that gives power to it, that it is your Spirit, your Son, and you yourself, Father, who have imbued into it a significance that we will spend eternity pondering the magnificence of it. I thank you, Lord God, and, and may, uh, if there are any here this morning who have come to faith in you and are not baptized, Father, may they, with the help of your Spirit, come to that moment of decision and say, yes, yes, I want to be baptized. This we ask and pray, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.